everybody, and welcome back to Don't Quit Your Day Job. My name is Paul, and I am your host. And today, all the way from New Digs in L.A., uh, Mr. Mark Tremalia. Burbank, California, home of Randy Rhodes. So, uh, so you did tell me you're right down the right down the road from where Randy grew up. Is that right? Literally, yeah, I'm like five blocks from his home that I would say it's his childhood home, but it was always his home. He never moved out. Like he was got the Aussie gig and was so busy traveling, he never got his own home and moved out. So, yeah, his home is is I can drive by there in in two minutes. (laughs) It's kind of funny. Was that the reason why you wanted this house in Burbank so you could be next to Randy Rhodes? I mean, isn't that what you make home decisions on? I mean, you know, <laughs> my other house out in Joshua Trees by Graham Parsons, you know, so now I'm just uh, just making it all up as I go. <laughs> uh, so speaking of, of Randy, have you gone out to the cemetery where he's buried? I, I've been to the celebrations they've had uh, on the memorial of his passing, the, like when his mom used to go out there and his sister and everything. And I, they may still, I haven't gone in years since his mom died. I haven't gone, but I used to go out there. It was, it was beautiful. You know, they'd set up a tent and his mom would talk and his sister would talk and, you know, Zach Wilde would show up and Tom Morello would show up and Mick Sueda would show up. Like there's always like a bunch of like, you know, quote rock stars there. Yeah. And it was always- <laughs> Cool. You know, and, and a lot of super Randy nerds and everybody asking about footage. And yeah. sometimes people would bring like uh, a TV with a VCR and they'd show like an old Quiet Riot show. And his mom would sign autographs. And I, I got a picture with his sister and Randy's uh, girlfriend. Oh, that's that's really them, cool. Yeah. When, so you mentioned Mick Sueda from Bullet Boys. I can only ever picture him with like a giant curly head of hair and wearing like a muscle muscle shirt, you know. So, because that's just the picture I have from the 80s. Is that how he just walked around in L.A.? Did he go to, to Randy's service dressed like that? He looks exactly the same. Yeah. Yeah. He had short hair for a while, but he's grown it back since. So it's back to like that curly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think his shirts are all cut off. You know, make sure you, you know, show up seps. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know since I'm huge. <laughs> like 130 now so you know things are good yeah right on uh all right so there's a couple of things that i would like to touch on in this episode and the first thing is um in a in some episodes in the past we've talked a bit about um surviving in la in your in your early days when you first moved there and having to to pawn gear so i want to start there and i want to understand what it means to to pawn something because I don't, I mean, I've certainly heard of pawn shops. I've seen pawn shops in the movies and there's that, that terrible history channel show that everybody loves. Uh, so when you, when you were back in the day, when you were going somewhere, you were turning gear in to get money in the moment. That's how it works, right? Yes, exactly. You know, I mean, in all honesty, as crappy as it is, I would sometimes go a couple days without eating and it would just get to the point where like, I'm not, you know, I'm tired of, of, 
of pushing shopping carts to get a quarter out of there because, you know, I paid my rent and I got nothing till my next paycheck and we got no food in the house. And, you know, you could go down to Ralph's and push the carts back in and they would drop a quarter. So you could do, you know, if, if there was enough around the lot, you could grab some and push them push them in and get yourself like two bucks and you could go buy a couple ramen, get some, you know, packets of ketchup and then you had a meal, you know, but after eating that for a couple of days straight, you're like desperate, you know, and you go, well, I got, you know, I got two Marshall heads here. Maybe I don't need one, you know, and I can get it back. I'm, I'm hundred percent going to get it back. So, you know, I'm going to go by six months. I'll have that thing paid off. I'll save up money. It'll be great. And six months later, you're still hungry. And, uh, yeah, you don't get it back. <laughs> so, so when you when you turn in a piece of gear, what happens to it? Do they immediately try to sell it, or do they hold it for you, or how does that actually work? Uh, it's, okay, that's a great question because actually, uh, it's usually held. So what you're doing is you're pawning it uh, as a uh, collateral. So basically, I would go get a loan. Like they would look okay. at my gear and go, like, okay, your Marshall head. Seriously, they'd go, your Marshall head's worth seventy-five dollars. So we can give you seventy-five dollars, and then you fill out a contract, and they hold it for six months. So you have six months to repay that seventy-five bucks. After the six months period, if you don't, then they put it for sale, and they'll sell it for five hundred bucks, and mm -hmm. you know, make a killing on. It. And that's pretty much what happened every time, you know. Wow. So when you got close to the six months, what's your thought process then? Or what do you remember being your thought process? Was it really, no, I really need to get this back? Or did you just decide, eh, it's too late now. I'm just going to forget it. Uh, I was always concerned with getting the gear back and I always just didn't have the money to do it. And I didn't have the pride to, you know, call family and say, can I have, you know, 150 bucks because there was interest too. So if I pawned it for 75 bucks, I might have to pay 125 to get it out, you know? And so I might be able to save up the 75, but then I still need, you know, another 50 bucks on that or whatever. So I'm like, ay, ay, ay. you know, what am I going to do? Was, so, yeah. was that a pretty common thing for your group of musician friends to, to pawn gear to, to get money? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, and I, I, there's a, a rock star, a friend of mine who shall remain nameless. And uh, he hit some really hard times with drugs. And at one point he pawned like 10 or 12 guitars. And I mean, these were like vintage instruments that were worth a lot. And he, uh, he was about to lose a few of them. And at that point I was playing with bang tango and I had a little bit of money and I needed, I needed to use certain guitars that I didn't have and I couldn't afford the, the big ticket for them. So I went and rescued a bunch of his guitars out of pawn and he got himself clean eventually and paid me back and took the guitars back. And it was, it all worked out great, you wow. know? And it's like, and thank God he didn't, he didn't lose those instruments because they were like, you know, a, a telly from the fifties, uh, Les Paul from the sixties, you know, right. things like that, that right. on for 500 bucks, just because rough times, you know, and it wasn't to eat. It was for other things, unfortunately. Right. <laughs> right. So when you look back on, on pawning stuff, why not, why not just sell stuff to try to get more money? As you said, like if you're pawning a Marshall head for 75, you know that it's going to sell for 500 or more. So why not sell it? Or is it really that you thought you were going to just get it back? 
oh, I definitely thought I was going to get it back. Okay. I mean, every single piece, the, the I mean, I, I think every single piece, I sound like I've pawned a lot. I think I've pawned three <laughs> things in my life, but all three of them, I was like, I'm getting them back no matter what I have to do. And all three of them just, for whatever reason, you know, I wish I could even remember the predicament of why I didn't get them back, but I, I never did. Right. When you, and it sucks. when again thinking back on these 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 rougher times for you, um, I'm glad I'm. Uh, are you happy that I'm dredging up all of these terrible memories for you? Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate it. I like to know what a piece of crap I am. So you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so last question here. When when you think yeah. back on those on those times, was that were those doing those things, were they discouraging for you as a musician trying to make it in LA or were they, all right, this is bad, but I'm going to bounce back and I'm going to do something. I think the first time it was, it's bad, but I'm going to bounce back and do something. Um, I think it got desperate after that, you know, where it was like, Oh man, I, uh, I, I, I need to eat and you know if I lose it I lose it you know but the, the I know the first the definitely the first couple I was like you know I'm getting these back regardless this is just a temporary thing and I'm gonna sign a million dollar record deal and everything will be great because I'll be walking around with a million dollars because that's how it works right they just <laughs> like oh it's a million dollar record deal here's a million dollars go buy a house and car and you know I don't know how we're getting our money back but you know here's your million <laughs> I mean you know that's how ignorant I was when I first moved to LA I just thought like you know oh it's you know you just got to get a record deal and you make it you know I mean my friends that all had deals all seem like oh they, they're they're living together in a house everything's great you know not knowing like details of what goes behind everything you know with you know a manager paying for the house and getting a kickback or getting his yeah. money you know like you just all these things that you're ignorant of when you're a kid you know because especially coming from Connecticut in a small town you know I had preconceived notions of what I thought things would be. And then, you know, like, like they always say, if I knew then what I know now, right. things would be a lot different. Right. Right. <laughs> not a lot different, but they'd be different. <laughs> so let's, let's uh, take off here a little bit and talk about gear. And uh, so pedal culture right now for guitar players or certain guitar players, maybe more blues lawyers and blues dentists and that, that sort of thing, that sort of disparaging uh, remark that lots of people make about guys with a lot of money who, who buy gear, but definitely pedal culture is a thing. As you know, I like pedals and I like to buy pedals and, and all of that sort of stuff. What I'm interested to know from you, from a guy who's gigged basically his whole life for a working musician, do pedals? I mean, you have a lot of pedals. We just talked about it before we started the podcast. As you moved, you found a bunch of stuff, but were, were, were pedals always part of guitar playing culture for, for you as a working musician? Always, always. I always had a pedal board. I, I hit a little spell in the mid 2000s where I started going direct into the amp because I could really, really hear a difference and it was really an Americana sound. But what happened is it becomes a volume battle. You're, if you're, especially if you're playing with another guitar player, you got to play loud if you're playing with no pedals because you're not having anything that's boosting your signal. So. Right it became more of an albatross than, than something that was cool because I turn up and then the other guitar player would turn up and then he had a pedal. So he kicked the pedal on. So even though I'm loud enough, he's way loud, you know? So, so it came to the point where I was like, okay, I got to start putting a pedal board back together, you know? And yeah. I mean, moving 
I, I cannot believe the pedals I have. Like I literally filled a briefcase and like four pedal boards full of pedals. I mean, I have everything from volume pedals to wah-wahs to whammy pedals to multi-effects boards to, you know, all all sorts of stomps. Now, the one thing I don't have that you have is I really don't have any boutique pedals other than like that um, that uh, love love pedal I have, you know, and, and I have a tiny. And I don't even know if those are considered boutique because any of those square ones that look like a Boss MXR pedal, I mean, that's, as a kid, I saw Randy Rhodes use those. I saw Eddie Van Halen use those. I saw Jimmy Page use those. Prince uses used a, a Boss pedal board his whole career. Like, he just had Boss right. pedals. That was it. So I always thought, like, if they're good enough for them, I'm, I'm just going for it, you know? I mean, in the, in the annals of things lost as a musician, when... Uh, Klon pedals first came out, the guy came to LA trying to sell them. And I, it was at the time I was working at Sam Ash and he brought in like four or five of them that he had. And one of the other guys uh, in the department bought it and the repairman bought it and he still has it. And that thing's worth like three or four grand. And he was selling them for like 150, 200 bucks, you know? And I was like, I was like, eh, I'm not that into pedals. I don't need this Klon thing. What, you know, it's a clean boost. I, you know, I want distortion if I want to boost, you know? <laughs> I will say most of my pedals, I don't know how you go about, and I'd like to hear your 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 way of finding pedals, but for me, like I rarely search out any pedal until I hear somebody else play it, and then I go, damn, that's a good pedal. Like My pedal board now consists of the Love pedal, and I use that mainly for low-volume gain. Uh, the EP booster, which I use 100% for a boost of a solo, whether it's a clean or a distorted boost. And then I have the MS-30, which is a Keeley pedal that is uh, it's uh, a sampling of uh, the Abbey Road Studio. Right. So it's it's got the slap back, it's got the reverb, and it's got the pitch warble. And those are the only three pedals on my pedal board. And really, the, the MS-30 I just use for slap back and reverb because the, the heads I'm playing, you know, whether it's an AC-30 or the EVH, you know, they don't have reverb in them. So I just use that for my reverb pedal, and then I have a tuner. That's it. That is my pedal. It's a little tiny thing. It'll fit in my suitcase going to Europe. It's nice and simple. That being said, I don't have any, like, cool effects on there and i do dig like phase i have probably five phaser pedals i i love flangers i have like three flanger pedals i love delays i have like five delay pedals you know um those are the main ones that i that i kind of mess with i have a bunch of wah-wahs i like wah-wahs um and and and, and i i'm i do have a couple of cool chorus pedals i have the dimension c which like prince used or dimension d Okay, whichever one. Dimension C, uh, Prince used that on Purple Rain. And it's like, if you play the chord with that pedal on, it's like, holy crap. It sounds <laughs> exact. I mean, it's stupid. It sounds so exact. Um, but yeah, I mean, and, and those, like the Phaser, the Dimension C, and Flangers, those kind of go off and on my board. Here and there, I'm like, yeah, it might be fun in this section of a song to use that. But for the most part, it just more pedals is more shit to plug in and more little areas where you can have problems with your sound and stuff that you don't know if it's a cable or a power cable or whatever, you know? And, but I think the best thing I ever did for my pedal board was get one of those bricks, those, uh, uh, smoky Joe's, I think they're called. And it's just a lithium battery and it's rechargeable. Right. So when I'm in Europe, I just charge it in the wall and it works for, I think it's 
10 hours or something like that. So I get like five or six shows out of it and plug it in and charge that sucker up. But I don't ever have to, you know, and when we go over there, we rent the gear that's already there. So, you know, the AC 30 I'll be using already has the right plug on it. I don't have to worry about that. Then I would have to ha have a hassle to find a plug for a pedal board at the front of the stage. Right. Now I don't have to do that. Now I just plug, you know, I just plug it into the battery pack and I'm good to go. So, so pedals are certainly, as I said, pedals are really a big deal now. And just, <clears throat> just as an aside, I only have weird pedals, right? I don't have pedals that make normal, like I don't have a chorus pedal. I have pedals that make crazy backward sounds and all of this stuff. Which is awesome. And that stuff, that stuff too. Uh, yeah, yeah, so that's it. I mean, that's it. I have two digital delay pedals and I have a Zoya, which can do anything. And I have a crazy reverb pedal. So I don't do any normal sounds, you know, basically. Um, do you use gain pedals? I don't uh, for my for my normal Mesa. I don't. All the gain comes from the amp. It's just it's wow. a three channel amp, and I just switch it with MIDI, and it's all it's all fine. Yeah. yeah. So going back to to back in the day, I know that everyone was using full stacks or maybe two full stacks. On you know loading their gear in and out, which to me now seems absolutely insane. Right? I just want my combo on wheels so I can push it places. <laughs> um, I hear you. <laughs> yeah, and and so you guys were loading this stuff in and out, but was, were these big spaceship pedal boards also a thing, or was everybody just plugging straight in? I uh, oh, the big pedal board spaceship things have been a thing, you know, especially in the '90s when Incubus was big and those kind of new metal bands were coming. I mean, Corn and Limp Biscuit and all that; those were like I saw pedal boards that were like a V. Like there was so <laughs> many pedals. I, you know, and I, for one, have never used a lot. I've always liked pedals. You know, I think the most I ever used at a time was maybe six, you know, which would be because I always liked the flanger phaser uh, um, uh, 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 chorus. So I'd always have those three peppered in somewhere with like a, a distortion pedal, basically, you know. And the one thing my board flacking, which every great musician, guitar player especially, should have because – I use the EP booster in the place of it, but a six band EQ is really what a lot of great musicians use because you can find the right frequency to cut through the band. Yeah. You can just move one slider up and go, that's got, got me over everybody without having to do a volume craziness thing. And I had one for years. I had a, a really cool boss, boss pedal board that I moved to LA with. I, I probably already told this story on the podcast, but it was a boss pedal board that had the tuner and then I had a boss overdrive and then it went into like a chorus into a flanger phaser delay and that was it and it was in the cool little molded plastic, yeah, plastic thing case yeah I had a friend who was a guitar player who was used it all the time he'd always borrow it from me and one day he goes dude you 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 know I'll trade you I got this like you know 36 inch TV I'll trade it straight up and I we needed a TV in our apartment me and my roommate and I was like done <laughs> so I traded that pedal board for a TV because I ha already had some pedals that weren't on there and I knew I could, you know, have a distortion and stuff and I'll just buy everything else, you know, like, like I tell myself, like, I'll get it out of pawn. I'll get it out of pawn. I'll buy stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. But yeah, so I traded a TV for that. And I see, you know, even Prince, like his last concert, he was still using that molded plastic little boss pedal board with like six pedals on it. It's yeah. like, holy shit. <laughs> and, and what happened to the TV, Mark? I yeah, honestly, I think I probably had that TV for like three months and it probably died or I gave it away or I moved because like I really like 
I still remember the pedal board, but I sure as hell don't remember that TV. (laughs) (laughs) And then one last gear question here before we move on. And uh, the Bradshaw rigs were really big in the in the 80s and early 90s. So giant refrigerator cases with a MIDI switcher out front and all of that stuff. Uh, That was big in like the hair metal scene. Did you ever get interested in any of that stuff? I fucking hated it all. I thought it was like, if you want to be an airline pilot, go fly a fucking plane. Put that refrigerator in the kitchen and put some food in there because all those effects are just muddling up your sound. Like, I remember seeing Extreme back in the club days, and Nuno was basically using a couple floor pedals and a Marshall. And he had what I thought at that time in the 80s was one of the best sounds ever. And the band did their first record and they got some notoriety. And then when they were doing their second record, Nuno got rid of everything. He used an ADA preamp with like a power, you know, a power feeder. And then he used all these rat and I went to see them and I actually left because I was like, it, not only does it not sound good, it's like tinny and like, he still played great. It didn't, you know, he could play a friggin' tin can and it would still sound great. But I mean, playing wise, but tone wise, it was just it was awful. Like all those guys, you know, I mean, even I think I listened to a podcast recently when Steve Lukather was like, I don't know what I was thinking with all that shit. He's like, you know, one day I just plugged back into the amp and I was like, there's the sound. Like, what am I doing? You know, like got his own like 18 wheeler truck to carry all the gear just to set up on his side of the stage. Like you don't need that. Just use, use an amp. Yeah. <laughs> you know? The, the, amp. you mentioned the ADA MP1 preamp. That was like the thing. I remember uh, that in the eighties and nineties, that was, everybody was, was playing that thing. And, and I had one for a while and I thought the same thing. This is really cool. It's impossible to program because you have to go through all the banks and it sounds crappy. <laughs> I will admit I borrowed one for like a couple weeks from a friend. He had like two or three of them because he was super into them. And I tried them and I just could not like at low volume sitting in the bedroom. I could like, oh, that's kind of cool, kind of fun to practice with. But trying to play with a band, I don't know. There's something about tubes that once they warm up, they compress just right with with the loudness. And then they react to your fingers, you know, like you can have a light touch and a hard touch and you can hear the tonal difference. Whereas solid state stuff sounds really good at a low volume, but when you start cranking it, it gets really tinny and brittle and it just doesn't cut through. And it's just, it doesn't react with your fingers the same way a tube amp is. And I mean, I'm I'm speaking as an old dude who's tried everything because I'm just desperate for, for simplicity. You know, I'd love to just, if I could just take a guitar and a cable and some simple amp, I would do it forever. But you know, simplicity right now is guitar and amp and a really tiny pedal board. And, you know, I mean, I don't get any complaints about being too loud and I think I cut through okay. And I can hear just what I need to hear. And I get a, a tubal tube response tubal. I don't know where the hell That's I just made word. that. Make that hey. word up, man. <laughs> but a tube, tube-like sound, so you know. Cool. Then that segues us nicely into the tour. So by the time this episode gets published, you will be in Europe on the Little Caesar tour, starting to play some shows. So <clears throat> what I want to understand, uh, and what I think will be interesting for for people listening, is. What you need to do right now in the couple of weeks leading up to going to Europe 
And then, you know, what does it mean to be a big giant rock band traveling through Europe on a nightliner and and beating the fans away? You know, so starting starting with now, you know, what do you do as a band to get ready to go? Well, well, first off, if you know any bands that have things like that happen and they're looking for a guitar player, let me know, because, you know, let's just start right there. Uh, for us, you know, I mean, we're we're a legacy act, you know, so our, our crowd tends to be older. But like we have talked about in the past, Europe tends to they tend to bring their kids with them or their kids friends. And you, you, you get a nice mix of of people, you know, as as far as getting ready, you know, like. Honestly, it's more of a mental preparation because like being away from the dogs and the new home and my wife and traveling, you know, things have been really um, crazy in in the world personally, you know, I mean, dealing with the move and and things that have happened uh, around uh, our personal lives is, is so it's it's like my focus isn't as great as it should be. You know, I've been working a lot too on a TV show, so that's been taking away time. Whereas mentally I'm like going, okay, I got to make sure I have, you know, all my pedals and my charger. I got to make sure they can fit in my suitcase. Cause I have to check my suitcase. I got my one guitar. I still haven't ordered guitar strings. So I got to get in touch with the company and have them send me a bunch of guitar strings so I can change them. You know, I got to make sure I have my, charger for my lithium battery because this year I don't think I'm going to bring a laptop. I think I'm just going to bring my iPad. So that means I'm going to have to have an adapter. So when I'm in a hotel room, you know, things like that, like stupid minutia is really where I'm at right now. Um, and, and it seems like, you know, all the forces that be are trying to make this tour not happen, except the band guys are just like, screw it. We want to go, you know? And so, you know, they canceled the first festival show we were going to do, which was going to be really big because they couldn't get the proper paperwork. And then um, EU just, you know, made this restriction about unvaccinated travelers, you know, which was just a recommendation. It's not like a hard and fast uh, thing. So at this point, you know, we're we're 100 percent still going. We have our airline tickets. We have our hotels booked for the tour. And. It's uh, it's going to be interesting, you know. I mean, I was talking to you before we started the podcast, saying how the first three shows I played in LA were elbow to elbow people. Like it was insane. Like I couldn't even get into the Viper room to to get my wife. I had to like call her to come meet me outside. Um, and then the last show we played, which was last Friday, uh, the um, CD release party for the uh, Cruzados. Um, the place holds like a hundred people. We wanted to do it at a small punk rock venue. And I think we had like 40 people there and it was just like, wow, what a difference. You know, even when I got there, it was like empty when I got there, I was like, is anybody coming out tonight? And people did show up, but it was still like, not at all what I expected. I expected like the other shows where it was going to be packed. But once the mask mandate came down again and the Delta variant is just, killing a lot of people Uh, people said wisely i'm gonna not really go out so you know and i'm vaccinated and i get tested constantly with my job so i feel knock on wood like i'm being safe and i you know i wear my mask and i wash the hell out of my hands so i try to do the right thing you know my family has medical practitioners in it four of them to be exact so you know between all of that and the haranguing that they give me to do the right thing i feel good so when you play shows in the u.s especially in california are you bringing two guitars 
because I know you mentioned that when you go to Europe, you only bring one. So what, what's your approach to bringing X number of guitars? Yeah. My approach is how little of stuff I can carry <laughs> into the place. <laughs> I mean, honestly, that's my motivation. I got, you know, 20 odd guitars. I'd love to bring like four or five and be cool like rich robinson like i saw the black crows and he literally played a different guitar they had they played 15 songs he played 13 different guitars okay. like and it was funny like the one song that he played the same guitar twice he actually took it off and walked over to his tech and his tech said something to him and he like shrugged his shoulders and put the guitar back on and walked out <laughs> like i laughed i probably not many people caught that but it's like yeah um i would love to do that but realistically i just bring you know, my, my EVH and, and I roll that on the 210, 212 cab that I play. And then my pedal board is in a little shoulder bag. So it's got four pedals on there, weighs nothing with the little, you know, brick, brick charger. And then I bring my Les Paul in normally a soft case. When I go to Europe, I, I have a, like a, a hard shell case that I bring it in. That's, that's got some protection to it. Um, so yeah, I, I try to keep it simple. Now that all being said, the Cruzados, when we did the record, I used some pretty specific guitars for certain tones on the album. So I have to bring three guitars to the Cruzado shows. So I bring the Dan Electro because I, I played like some ratty slide stuff on on this silver tone, like from the 50s. And you just you got to have that sound. Like I've tried it with the Paul. I tried it with the Telly didn't work you know and I played the Telly on 90 percent of the record there's two songs where I played the Paul and for my fingers and ears I tried playing the Paul on those songs and then I tried playing the Telly on the Paul songs and none of it worked so I just okay. I had to say screw it and bring three guitars so to alleviate that Paul I'm so ridiculous that I put them all in gig bags and I literally put all three of them on my shoulders <laughs> I put a pedal board on my other shoulder, you know, put across my neck and everything so it doesn't fall. And then I roll in my amp with it. And everybody's like, what is wrong with you? Like, make trips. I'm like, no, I don't want to make it trips. <laughs> oh, that's great. And and once you're in Europe, um, are you, you're, I'm presuming you're staying at hotels and then you're, you're driving around, someone's driving you around to wherever the next show is. You have a tour manager with you kind of directing how everything tour is going. Yeah, tour managers doing everything. So the promoter himself, the last tour we did, he didn't have any other bands that he had to go out with. So he actually went with us. He drove and, you know, um, advanced everything for us and took care of merch and takes care of getting paid and, you know, make sure the hotels are booked and everything like that. This tour, he's actually out with, he's managing a band as well as being a promoter over there. And uh, he's going out with that band. They're actually out there already. Uh, they flew into France. They said they're, they went through customs and they didn't even ask about a vaccination or anything. And then they went to Germany and they had to fill out some paperwork about COVID vaccination and let them right in. And Belgium, same thing. So he said, as far as I'm concerned, nothing has changed. Right. So, you know, plan, plan to get over here. Um, but I digress. Where were, where were we at? Uh, the, we the road manager sort of taking care of everything. So you're just you just have to show up at a place and then the next thing happens. Right. Exactly. Yep. So everything's there. And, you know, we, we typically stay at the Ibises. So um, you've yeah. lived in Germany, so you probably know about the Ibis Hotels. Certainly so. know about the Ibis Hotels, yes. Oh, yeah. So if you know Motel 6 in America, you know Ibis <laughs> in Europe. So 
that's basically, you know, and the thing is, is we're only in that room to sleep, you know? I mean, we get there, we drop our, our bags off, which have our clothes, basically. Then we go right to the club. We, you know, the tour manager will help us set up our gear. We'll do a sound check. Then they'll feed us. Then, as you know, in England, I mean, I'm sorry, in Europe, typically everything's earlier, except in Spain. Everything, you're usually on by 10 o'clock at the latest, you know? And then we'll play. Maybe we'll have a post uh, show dinner or hang out. We used to do a meet and greet. We'd hang out with the fans for a couple hours after the show, but I, I don't think we're going to do that yeah, this time. Yeah. I don't, I'm not really a fan of doing it this time. Um, not that I don't want to meet and greet and hang out with everybody, but like, you know, the whole COVID thing right, just is just more dangerous. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The last thing I want, you know, last thing I want is to get sick over there and then have to stay another, you know, however long, right. you know, and not be able to get back here. So that's definitely a concern, you know? Um, and then, you know, we go to the hotel, we sleep, and hopefully we only have like a four-hour drive so we can sleep in, because if not, then we're up at 7 a.m. for an eight- or ten-hour drive, you know, depending right. on where we're going, you know, and just like a vacation, right? Just like a vacation, <laughs> exactly. Any? Do you have any days off on this tour? Uh, three. Okay. Yeah. So the first day I get there, I get there on September 12th. Uh, flying out on September 11th. I, it's an overnight flight. And then I have the 13th off. If it's a drive day, it's a five-hour drive to Cologne, Germany. And that's our first show. And then we do six straight day off. Then I think we do seven straight day off and then like five straight and then we're done. Okay. And uh, last last question here about the tour. Um, how often will you change strings? Since you're only doing the one guitar, do you change strings every show, every couple of shows? I usually do every third show. Okay. So I'll play a show, play a show, change strings, unless the guitar's really in tune and I can, I always run my finger up the first string and if I feel dense on it, the second I feel a dent, it's gotta be changed. Right. So, cause dents mess with your intonation and I like to play in tune as weird as that is. That is weird. Uh, very, very odd choice to play <laughs> in tune, Mark. Um, well, I mean, Having to learn poison solo, so having to learn how to play out of tune. <laughs> when was the last time you broke a string? Uh, it's been a while, honestly. I, you know, string breaking comes from two things. Well, three things: playing too hard, burrs that you don't know are there. You know, All you right. just can't see them, and. Uh, old faulty strings. So I try to take at least two of the two of the things out of the equation. I, I usually get my guitar set up and I'll always have them use their magnifying and make sure the burrs are all gone, yeah. that everything's nice and clean. I take pencils with me because I draw graphite in there. So I always have a nice, you know, friction in there. So my strings will stay in tune better. Uh, I play with, a, as you know, with a fairly light touch. So I, I try not to dig in too much. You know, sometimes it's hard. There's, you know, a lot of people and you get adrenaline and you go, fuck, I played that chord really hard. So if I have two of those things out of the equation, I feel comfortable that I'm, you know, and I've definitely had bad packs of strings. Like, I've played long enough that it's happened to me numerous times where I've gotten strings and like I've had a bad D string or I've tuned up the E string and it broke as I was tuning it up. So usually that's where that stuff happens. The last time I broke a string on stage, honestly, was probably like 20 years ago because okay. I play light enough and I try to, you know, I'm also prepared which I think is one of the keys. Uh, a lot of times if I know my strings are a day or two old, I'll put like a, a string winder and a pack of strings on my amp 
So if I do break a string, it's just a whoop and I'm done. And because I'm prepared for it, it's never going to happen. It's the day that I go, eh, I'm going to leave that thing in the case. It's the day that I break a string on stage because that's that's how life works. That is definitely how how life works. Okay, (laughs) last thing here. um, Does this tour feel different because of the circumstances in the world do you do you feel different about this tour your first sort of bigger tour coming back from shutdown where COVID is still very much in in the foreground of things happening you know i would say normal world turmoil is happening i know that there were storms in in germany and some of the clubs you were going to play got knocked out right and all of that stuff so does this tour feel different to you at all uh, 100%. Yeah. It doesn't feel, there's usually an excitement and an anticipation. Um, usually like I kind of can't wait. And honestly, even like two or three weeks ago, I was like, I kind of can't wait, you know, mm-hmm. but then the, the Delta variant really surged. And then I saw the numbers in France, which is we're spending, you know, five days in France. And, and then, you know, the, my wife and I were planning on spending a week there cause she was going to come to my last show at Etois, this, this, old school opera house that is going to be really cool because we've already almost sold it out if, if it'll, you know, still happen. Um, I was really looking forward to that. And then, you know, with everything that's been happening and then, you know, Afghanistan and you just never know, you know, like, I mean, they're not mad at France or Germany or Belgium, you know, but you never know. And, you know, Germany, like you said, has had a lot of floods. Belgium, the club we played there, Spirit of 66, I know two months ago, flooded out. I think it's, we're playing there still, so it's obviously back, but it's like, man, (laughs) it's not the same world at all that it was the last tour a couple of years ago, you know? So, so there's definitely some trepidation and some concern, but I mean, I don't know what else to do because it's all I really know how to do. So I I feel kind of like stuck, you know, I know my wife's pretty worried and I'm a little bit concerned and, and it's weird because I've never been concerned. So I'm kind of interested to hear this when I'm there because yeah, yeah. it's like, am I still going to feel that concern and trepidation? It's almost like we'll have to do an update when I'm over there that, because I'm just, I'm, yeah. That is so, the plan. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to definitely try to try, try to sync up while you're over there and record at least one podcast. Maybe even, you know, if they have to be shorter or whatever, we can do that. Just figure out because it'll be interesting to, to get the firsthand sense of a tour in Europe on the podcast. It'll be great. Now you have, you know, you have bandmates in, in Germany. What are they, what are their feelings over there? How are they dealing with things? Are they concerned still? Or? I mean, there's concern, but it's sort of like how we're approaching it here. People are trying to be smart, get vaccinated. You know, if you go to shows, be smart about going to shows. Um, it, if you feel sick, you know, even if it's maybe just a cold, don't go to the show. All of that sort of, you know, smart person stuff, I think is, is the thing, but it's unpredictable right now because we've talked on and off about me going there or them coming here and touring. And, and we still have those plans sort of on the table, but who knows what's going to happen in a month or two months or five months. It's really hard to predict. Yeah, man. I mean, Life has never felt so teetering, you know, from the move to that house to here to leaving for the road for work in my job. It's just like, you know, and I'm still kind of living in boxes at this point. I mean, I got my studio almost 100. You, you saw it earlier on, on, you know, but it's still, you know, I'm looking at a stack of boxes inside our house, a stack of boxes. Our garage looks like a friggin' public storage, you know, like. Yeah. 
you know, we downsized and downsized and spaced and upsized in cost. So <laughs> that's how California works, apparently. Apparently. <laughs> uh, well, right on. Thanks, Mark. Thanks to everyone who's listening. Please continue to do so. Please continue to support and tell your friends about the show. It is very much appreciated. Mark, uh, good luck, buddy. Be safe and be well. And we'll talk to you while you're while you're over there. Sounds good. Well, definitely. I mean, we did it the last time I was there. I don't see why we won't be able to, to get together then. Yeah, so right on. it'll be like eight o'clock for me there. It'll be noon for you. <laughs> Perfect. All right, buddy. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, Paul.